everybody. Welcome to You Are Good, the feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about my girl. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I'll soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall, and we'll be joined by our wonderful guest, Lindsay Broad. Can't wait to talk about this one. You, you all request this one all the time. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. But first, I just want to let you know that You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We appreciate you. You make the show possible and you get bonus episodes as a result. And sometimes you get live stream events. We did one last month and we're going to do another one again. We were so into how that went and it seems like a lot of you have engaged it or gone back to engage it. You can check it out. Even if you join Patreon today, you can see the event that we recorded. And if you're not able or interested in giving on Patreon, uh, but you listen via Apple Podcasts, you can now subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. It's one fee for the monthly subscription. It's uh, another fee that's a little bit uh, less expensive for the annual subscription. You get all the bonus episodes. If you don't want to set up a Patreon and you're already using Apple, you can do the Apple subscriptions. Just look at the show. It'll give you a subscription option. Check the show notes. There's a link as well. But subscribe on Apple if Patreon is not a thing that you want to do or are interested in doing or use Apple more. We will soon have bonus episodes about Jurassic World Dominion. We have one that's just a bunch of your testimony about what summer camp was like for you because Sarah and I did not go to summer camp as you heard us discuss in our Wet Hot American Summer episode. A lot of good stuff coming up for our Patreon supporters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making this possible. And we also got some support from Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory, a commercial and video content production company with offices in Portland, Maine, and Nashville, Tennessee, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need that sort of work done, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Again, we're talking about my girl. Lindsay is our guest. Lindsay listens to the show. Lindsay is an actress and you might have seen her in any number of her credits in 21 Jump Street and Don Juan and Get Him to the Greek. She appeared opposite Stephen Merchant on the HBO series Hello Ladies. She was on Impeachment American Crime Story. She's on Julia. She We talk about this in the episode. She played Kathy Sims on The Office and she was the person a lot of people directed their ire towards because Kathy tried to steal Jim away from Pam. Yeah, Lindsay's fantastic. And so I am excited that Lindsay is here with us to talk about My Girl. My Girl, of course, is a 1991 American coming-of-age comedy drama film directed by Stephen Zeef. It stars Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis, Macaulay Culkin, and, of course, Anna Klumsky in her first major motion picture role tells the story of an 11-year-old girl living in Madison, Pennsylvania during the summer of 1972. You know this movie. If you know this movie, you know this movie. And we're going to get into it and everything around it. I think that's that's all I got for you before we jump into this. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for helping us make this happen. We really appreciate you. You are good, my friend. Hi, Veda. Can you come out? I don't know. Please, it's real hot. Maybe we can go swimming. No. Get out of here. And don't come back for five to seven days. Does Veda ever tell you why she comes down here so much? Because she's dying. 
Do you think she is? No. Why do you think she says that? Because she gets scared of all those dead people in her house. And you know that saying, can't beat them, join them. Well, she's one of them. She won't be as scared. Veda, something happened to Thomas J last night. He stepped on a beehive. I told him not to tease those bees. Did he get stung? Wanna go tree climbing, Thomas J? His face hurts. And where is his glasses? He can't see without his glasses. Put his glasses on. Put on his glasses. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I was born jaundiced. <laughs> that was the original name of the movie, right? Yes. So this is a movie that everybody has feelings about that mm-hmm. listens to our show that they recommended a lot. Uh, I haven't seen this movie since it came out, though it had like that deep impact that it has on anybody. Because when you say you're going to watch this movie, a lot of people quote the same line, which is about glasses. This is my new favorite movie about an 11 year old Nixon fan. I will say <laughs> like this is my new favorite movie about a young Republican gal. And we're covering it with Lindsay Brutt, who said, Lindsay, say hello and tell us why you brought us this traumatizing film. Hi. So you asked about summer movies, and I feel like the first image I had was them riding bikes in summer. Mm. This was a movie that I saw as a kid in the theater with my parents. And now that I think about it, I was significantly too young (laughs) for this movie. (laughs) Everything about it to me felt cool in the same way that like to a seven-year-old babysitter's club, 13-year-olds felt cool. (laughs) There's nothing cooler than her. She has a crush on Dominic. No, not Dominic. I'm so sorry. She's extremely cool. She has a crush on Griffin Dunn. Like only the coolest possible 11-year-old would have a crush. I didn't have a crush on Griffin Dunn until I was like... 17, 19. This movie would be much different if her crush was on Dominic Dunn. That would be a whole other movie. Whole other (laughs) movie. That would be a movie about you, Sarah. Yeah. Okay, (laughs) moving on. (laughs) So, okay, okay. Before we get into it, for anyone who has not been traumatized by My Girl or inspired by My Girl, Sarah, can you please tell us what happens in My Girl? Yes. So My Girl is the tale of a summer in the life of Veda Sultanfus, who one day is going to grow up to work for Vice President Selena Meyer. And it's the summer that she and her just very socially shut down funeral home director dad, Dan Aykroyd, the summer that they find love and heartbreak. And it all happens really fast, like in a John Irving novel. (laughs) So it starts off with them meeting Shelly, who is a roving beautician who comes to town in her camper and starts working for Veda's dad. And then they start a relationship and very quickly get engaged. And then also Veda joins a creative writing class led by her crush, her during the school year teacher, Griffin Dunn. She gets her period and she has her first kiss with her best friend, Thomas J, played by Macaulay Culkin, who then, spoiler, 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 <laughs> dies of bee stings or wasps. Well, they say bees while trying to find Veda's mood ring. But it's also like, <laughs> I was thinking today, I was like, what if Veda is such a hypochondriac? 
because she senses that death is all around her, <laughs> you know, and that's not a thought you have about a lot of kind of like light, frothy coming of age movies. As we ended the movie, I was left with the question, who is the my girl? Explain that question slightly. Well, because that title suggests that it's about Veda, like ending the movie sort of being cherished by some kind of particular person. It's like somebody's watching her and being like, ah, my girl. But like her dad's <laughs> still basically ignoring her. She has a nice relationship with Shelly. That's like the only growth area. And then she had this like growing lovely relationship with Thomas J. And then he died because sometimes the people you love just die. So she's kind of on her own. And it's like, well, anyway, she has a new friend. So that's great. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> what is in front? What if Judy is my girl? That's what I said. That was what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking that, you know, in a way, it is a movie about maybe her last summer of like pure girlhood. Mm. Listen, I also don't think this title is about anything because I did read on IMDb <laughs> that they just had a contest right. and everybody submitted poor titles. And in the end, I think Brian Grazer named the movie and then he licensed the song. And we spent the whole movie being like, did he get the thousand bucks? He, they said he kept a thousand dollars And the whole movie. I was thinking, when are they going to play the song? Should I be like, when are they going to play the song? Yeah. And it's like over the credits at the very, very end. Keep them waiting. And then boom. <laughs> the shocking part about this movie is that Macaulay Culkin is barely in it. That's yeah. true. He's like Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs. Or the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Yes. <laughs> like, where is Macaulay Culkin? It's all about anticipating Macaulay Culkin and sensing that he's coming. I think Macaulay Culkin at this time had like huge negotiating power where he was like, I'll take a full ass salary for two days of shooting. And they're like, it's Macaulay Culkin to get him in there. <laughs> well, I was wondering, like, do you think a young Macaulay, like a 10 year old Macaulay Culkin is like reading scripts with his mom and they're discussing? Or do you think all these decisions were made for him? Well, I think his dad, notoriously, his dad was making it and then keeping all the money. Right. Good that I don't know any of this. Another story I've always liked along these lines is that Molly Ringwald, David Lynch wanted to offer her the role that went to Laura Dern in Blue Velvet. And her mother got the script initially. And she was like, absolutely not. And so Molly Ringwald never heard about it, which like Laura Dern should get any role that needs someone to make like really big shapes with their mouth <laughs> as that role does. So I'm not sad about it, but that would have been an interesting, different movie that we would have ended up with. I wonder if they taught her and her mom talk about that. Yeah. Lindsay, take us to your relationship with the movie. Tell us about, uh, you told us a bit about sort of like what you got into it too young, but like, why, why is this a movie that stuck with you? So I saw this movie in the theater. I have a very strong memory. I have a father who famously cries in movies and I have a very strong memory of my mother. It was her heaven, the degree to which my father was weeping after this movie. And I, I have to imagine I must have had it on VHS because I was able to anticipate every beat of this movie when we watched it back, but I certainly haven't seen it since I was Veda's age. Hmm. For me, it was, as I said earlier, like an aspirational movie. I think that I thought it was really everything about her was cool. The fact that she had so many relationships with a boy was cool. Like that I had no friends who were boys and I thought that was like edgy and fun. She had so many relationships with adults. I thought it was cool that she was like in an adult's writing class and that she had any sense of direction and it wasn't just to like be a ballerina. I think that I just in every way thought she was the coolest 
I was sort of the perfect age difference, I think, when I saw it, where she was just a few years older than me to seem really old. Yeah. I don't recall seeing this in the theater, but I must have rented it a lot because very similarly, like I knew everything that was going to happen in advance of it happening. And I wonder if that was like a TBS effect thing. Like, was it always on television in some way and I picked it up or like, what did I rent it a lot or did I just watch it once and it etched into my soul? But I think it might be, who knows? I have no idea, but I remember every single thing about this movie. I must have seen it a million times because also I had this weird thing where every actor who appeared on the screen, I was like, what are they from? And then I would look at up and I'd be like, no, they're just from my girl. <laughs> so like every hippie in the writing class, I was like, this person looks so familiar. Oh my God. Well, I grew up v- with a very strong relationship with the movie One Crazy Summer, which is what Tom Villard is the actor who plays the hippie who died of AIDS related compilations in 1994. And it turns out, I oh, only really? learned this while we were watching the movie and turns out was like one of the very first like out actors to be like, not only am I gay, I have AIDS. He was the guy with the curly hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he did that like on entertainment tonight, which was, which seems like it was probably revolutionary at that time. But I love him. So I love that actor so much. He just played that character in a lot of things. I think, And it was just like such like a wonderful sweetness to him in that, in that role. I bet he was on the golden girls. Oh, probably. Absolutely. Is this Macaulay Culkin's like most other than home alone, his most iconic thing. I think it is, right? This, as far as like popular consciousness goes, he was also in, around this time in a movie called The Good Son, which was... Yes. I watched at that age. I don't know why. Like, I, my mom was like, Macaulay Culkin's in it. Must be good. And it was about <laughs> Macaulay Culkin murdering people. <laughs> I know. He sure did. He was the bad son in The Good Son. This was like a big era of tragic children movies. Like, do you hmm. remember The Cure? Oh, yes. Which was like Joseph Mazzello, the little boy from Jurassic Park, had AIDS. And he and Brad Renfro took like a raft down the river to search for a cure for AIDS. <laughs> yes, I oh, sure God. do remember that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But there were all these tragic children's movies yeah. that were like geared towards our generation of young children, which is very. It's no wonder we fell in love with vampires because we were like, all the guys I like are dead. So now it's a vampire. <laughs> well, it's for all the kids that came up on Don Bluth in the 80s. And they're like, now we need to give yeah. them live action tragic movies to like keep them going. <laughs> well, I feel like the thing with my girl that I just always it was sort of like um, in tandem with like my obsession with like Holocaust children's books mm. was that she had like so much tragedy around her in a way that I felt like very innocent and boring and I think I just thought she just she had like a dead mother who she was convinced she killed she had this dad who was like sometimes mean to her and this like step with this new everything about it it just felt I don't know no, but, well, I think to your point about it being aspirational, I don't think I recall seeing many girls in roles like this at that time. Mm-hmm. There's like an idiosyncratic nature to her personality. She is, to your point, convinced that death is around her in part because she's making it happen. Like like the shit that's on her shoulders psychologically at this age. You're saying that like she's killing people. She probably thinks she is. That's what she thinks, at least. She certainly killed her best friend. But Alex, this is why you're not going to be my lawyer. <laughs> but don't you think she's going to grow up and it's she's going to this is going to be her new pathology? Yeah. Is that she's convinced that she has killed everybody. But therapy won't be invented for another 10 years. Well, I think they never should have given her the mood ring back. But the mom didn't know. No, she did. She had no idea. But she was basically like, here's the evidence. Maybe you didn't kill your mother, but you for sure killed my son. 
Oh my God. This is what everything felt like to me at 10 was I was like, am I responsible? Did I do this? Yeah. This is like a Puritan morality tale in a way. It's like, (laughs) and then the little girl loved her ring and the little boy was stung to death by bees for sometimes the hand of God big slaps those you love most for your tiny sins. It's a bluegrass song. That too. <laughs> the stories told by people who are used to seeing people they love die all the time for no reason. <laughs> Can we talk about a bit about the like, is that last? So actually, it's several things. One, I realized that this movie takes place seven to eight months before Roe v. Wade is codified, which is obviously significant to our moment. The second is that at the end is her comment about Richard Nixon just a joke like is it a joke about how funny the 70s are about to turn into because like at the end she's like everything's great now and Richard Nixon just got reelected fantastic like is that a very funny haha joke about how naive we were in 71 I think our politics were just so light (laughs) I think our politics were just so light that that was a funny joke it is the final beat in the entire movie which is really funny it's like so that's what we're going out on is a sentence that began with the words Richard Nixon I was gonna say I think if you think about this movie and you remember that the original title of it was Born Jaundiced it sort of makes the whole thing make a lot more sense it finally comes around to the person who was really born jaundiced (laughs) it should be called my girl hyphen or my girl colon born jaundiced like I think that that would give us a fuller picture of what we're dealing with (laughs) what is your Sarah what's your read on Dan Aykroyd the dad what's going on here listen this is a man who likes trains you know and that's just hard for society (laughs) in my girl times Yeah, it's true. (laughs) No one knows what to say to him. No one knows how to explain any of this to him. Also, like the concept of fathering, honestly, still to this point, I think has connotations of like, ah, yes, the moment when the father goes, and the baby is conceived because that's the fathering and then mothering is like everything for the rest of your life. So like the concept of fathers as active parents was not invented, I think, until 1978 around Kramer versus Kramer. Like this has always been done historically, but the idea of there being it being like a choice that you do on purpose in some way as something we're talking about as a society is very new. And so I don't know. I'm curious about how much of this is also just historical ideas about how much kids raise themselves. Mm. Like I love the fact that in Stephen King's it, I know I've brought this up before, but I love how the parents response to Pennywise it being on the loose and gobbling up children, like quite a few for a small town to be sure. They're like, okay, kids, there's a shape-shifting monster that's eating children going around town, or we think it's like a ripper serial killer. But the point is something is like gobbling up children and stealing their limbs. So you can go alone wherever you want. Just be home by seven. (laughs) That'll save you. Yeah. Our childhood was closer to her childhood than my kid's childhood is to my childhood. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, I rode my bike miles from my house at like a very young age and would play in the woods and all that other stuff Mm -hmm. that like is so far from the reality that these kids live now. Yeah. Again, and it's also one of those things where you take the context, this movie is in 1991, it takes place in 1972, this movie takes place essentially in 2003. Mm -hmm, That's a... (laughs) 
<laughs> That's a real head twister. 2003, when the OC was was a twinkle in our eyes, and <laughs> and we loved seeing tween girls' torsos more than anything. Yeah. A whole piece of this movie that resonates with me that I, again, ha- I can't believe I hadn't thought of consciously is like, my parents got divorced when I was 12. Logically, I should have ended up with my mother based on all factors, but my dad stayed in Maine, which is the reason I stayed in Maine or which is the reason I stayed with my dad was, was, it was state contingent. I wanted to stay with my friends. So like after I did like a year in Boston, I went back to Maine to go live with my dad and my dad was Dan Aykroyd in this situation. He's like, well, my wife's effectively dead Mm. in my dad because my dad's extreme nature in Massachusetts is the same as dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It didn't work out for me, so it's no longer. And so now I just have this kid that I have to figure out how to like navigate my life around. And by that, I mean, live my life exactly as I was living it before and sneak fathering in occasionally, if if even. Just sort of grumble as necessary. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So like this whole thing where it's like dad suddenly has to do more than just ejaculate and go to work. It's it's interesting to watch unfold. Yes. For a good chunk of time in America, those were the two things, which is amazing. Well, then you get into Jamie Lee Curtis and like, what is her attraction? And is it that she's just looking for a family to plop herself into? It's so like, I just think about that bingo scene and we're like, what is the attraction here? And is it that she just wants to be a mom? Yeah. If there's anything we learned from A Fish Called Wanda, it's that Jamie Lee Curtis in the movie she plays loves mousy guys. (laughs) Can't get enough. I did wonder that many times was I was like, are we we not going to be afforded a glimpse into the spark between these two? Because she she does give that speech where she's like, I never thought I was going to be part of a family. I, I drove my house up here and now I'm a part of this family. Like that seems to be the brunt of her motivation is she didn't think she'd ever be part of a family. I will say though, we thought they had chemistry, Mm. like sexual chemistry. And my husband was saying that I guess they had worked together prior to this movie because I was thinking to myself, this is a sort of odd role for Jamie Lee Curtis. It's more of a Laura Dern role. If you look at mm. how it's written, it's written as a hippie. Mm. If you look at the text of her dialogue, it is not written in the way it is being delivered. It is etched into our memory, so it seems normal, but it's sort of like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense until I think they kiss. And then it is my opinion that I thought it was hot. Oh, wow. I found it hot. I agree. They were in training places together like seven years before this. Oh, yeah. Which was like a similar role where like he's this asshole finance guy. So, yeah, I feel like there would be also probably some comfort of working with somebody who if you'd like been like acted in a romantic pairing before and it had gone well, because that seems like a hard thing to do. I guess I never really thought about the fact that she is to Dan Aykroyd. She is his Meg Ryan. Ah, that's true. (laughs) It's kind of cute. I don't want to shortchange anyone whose motivation for getting into a thing is wholly like there was a family that already existed and I could be helpful in that in some way and wanted it at the same time. Like I've certainly tricked myself into that situation in the past <laughs> yeah alex you and so, i have both done that hundreds of times yes totally. maybe this family will be nice to me like lassie herself but yeah to your point like she is written as a hippie but like it's maybe exclusively 
on the page. I was really hoping that that cookie jar that uh, Macaulay put his hand into is going to be full of weed, but instead we found out it was full of money. I was really thinking it would be. And her costumes. Yeah. Do we think she's supposed to be a good makeup artist? No, right? Yeah, of course not. No, she says, I'm a makeup artist. Because even Veda's like, you're really bad at this. Don't go to Hollywood. Well, that's why it's good that she got waylaid in Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, why are they wearing jeans in Pennsylvania in the summer? That is astounding, <laughs> but also like, think of the other fabrics people were wearing in the summer in the 70s like so much polyester and stuff that didn't breathe like maybe they were like in such misery all the time that jeans felt comparatively okay well thomas J was wearing shorts yes well good for him he he made the most out of (laughs) he made his brief life (laughs) (laughs) did you guys cry of course oh my god this is how i would describe it so i recently read charlotte's web to my son and i got through the end i got through the death and i was like i'm gonna be okay i'm gonna i'm gonna make it through this it's gonna be okay and then i get to the last fucking paragraph and i was like oh i forgot it's the last paragraph that gets you it's him talking about her being a good writer and that was the same thing with this movie i was like i'm gonna be okay i know it's his glasses his glasses and then i was fucked at the end anyway what what part did make you cry was it that scene or was it a different one i think it's this that funeral is just rough yeah oh yeah it's rough it's the it's her going into the funeral and she's just found out that her great love mr bixler is gonna marry some some lady in the fall do you think that mr bixler's fiance knew that she had the hots for him oh for sure i would bring that up and she was like you have to do something (laughs) yeah there's several things about that funeral that stuck out that i am surprised i didn't remember based on how much i remembered one he has bee stings all over his face as the body i knew what had happened but that is a lot to deal with and I remember her speech and everything that she said, but I, for whatever reason, remembered it as like she stood in front of everyone and like pleaded like she was a speaker and not she was draped over her dead best friend's body over on a coffin. In street clothes, like not dressed for a funeral, like in whatever she was wearing. Can you speak to the like the dead tender boy (laughs) era? Well, yeah. So what comes to mind is this and Casper with, I believe, Devin Sawa. Um, and then also Thackeray Binks and Hocus Pocus. Like there was just a little bit of a wave of like, you know, who's like the ultimate and non-threatening teen and tween boys. A dead one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I just think that that's interesting with regards to the gender politics of our nation. Thank you. There was also like a whole book series, and I'm trying to remember what it was, that was exclusively about... Teens with um, terminal illnesses. I know of them. I haven't read them. But yeah, I know that this was a whole genre. And we're not talking about John Green, by the way. This was a whole thing earlier, and I'm sure much earlier than that as well. I'm sure this like reappears like every 20, 30 years as a big kind of on the surface boom. And that was the thing with like all these or movies with boys with dead moms. That was a Simon Birch thing. Like I loved like a tragic, not fully through puberty boy. Mm. You can't have an alive mom and get anywhere in children's media, honestly. What what do you think like is like is having to do with like the death of a friend in one of these movies, particularly like at a time when we don't have a ton of nuanced takes because we're so young, is it significant because 
it represents just all of the weird ways that we feel that we're not able to like put our fingers on and we're like yes it's like that bad in my inside sometimes and I don't quite know how to articulate it or is it the easiest and bluntest way to set up character development like why why is that a thing we continue to go to I don't know how you guys feel about this, but I feel like as a child, I was constantly obsessed with my parents dying. Mm -hmm. Much in the same way as a parent, I am now consumed by the idea of something bad happening to my children. Mm -hmm. I think it sort of has that same weight. And I think the idea of something happening to a friend was so sort of catastrophic and out of left field. Mm. But this also speaks to like Veda and the idea that she was just this like beacon of tragedy that like these, she already had like the tragic thing of her mother dying. And then she now, she lives in a funeral home with her icy dad. And now this other tragic, that was sort of her most intimate relationship because her relationship with her dad wasn't that intimate. Mm. I don't think I knew anyone like in my personal universe, like of, of a friend group who died until... I was about 13. And then when that that happened, like in front of the school, because they died at a basketball game and pretty instantly changes your perspective on when the other shoe is going to drop. You know, if you're in Veda's position and your mother has died and you come up sort of in the wake of that your entire life, waiting for the other shoe to drop is a substantial part of the your consciousness seems like she's always expecting herself to die. Right. Mm -hmm. Like she was constantly consumed with her own death and then it sort of found her, but not in the way that she expected. Yeah. That's a great point. I loved the thing she said about that. This like came up a couple times that she thinks she's had a chicken bone stuck in her throat for two years. Cause I had like similarly kind of weird theories about my body when I was that age. And one of them was that, like, I had to be careful about opening my eyes too wide because if I did, my eyeballs could pop out, which I was like, I guess had like <laughs> recurring obsessive thoughts about how horrible that would be. So, yeah. Do you think that Veda is like a girl that existed or do you think she is like a male screenwriter's fantasy, kind of like Natalie Portman and Beautiful Girls? Like mm. It was written by a woman. So that's good. Oh, that makes me s- sorry. I should have known that. Mm-hmm. Oh, no problem. I didn't know until an hour before. But it was directed by a man. Yes. Well, yeah, like with a, a mainstream movie, you never know how many male hands have been in the soup for sure. Yeah. But she feels real to me because she's like, she's smart. She's like annoying at various points. And she's not pre-sexualized in that way that you honestly see a lot with characters of this age. Yeah. She's a girl who now, if she existed now, would just have her own YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Where she totally. talks about salamanders or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Whoever has salamander talk that's going on, it's great. I'm glad that they're out there doing that thing. I don't know what the closest approximation to this is because so much... So much media about this age group is usually like slightly higher and it's about some like sexual coming of age or like some awkward awakening. Like the babysitters club, like Lindsay, you mentioned earlier, where it's like a group of friends or like now and then like they're about this age. Yeah. So it's like a kind of group coming of age. But like it's weird to have a like solo buildings roman movie about an 11 year old girl. You know, again, this is a movie that I think I watched a lot, probably between the ages of like eight and ten. And I had no memory of the degree to which it was about any kind of like sexuality. Mm -hmm. 
Like I remembered as a child, she had a crush on her handsome English teacher. I remembered that she had this relationship with her boyfriend. And again, I thought that was so cool because I never had friends with boys and I didn't have a brother. And I thought that was like very edgy, Mm -hmm. but I didn't remember her getting her period. I didn't like none of that as a child watching this movie did I internalize. And again, I was a seven-year-old reading Sweet Valley Twins about 11-year-olds and an eight-year-old reading Babysitter's Club about 13-year-olds. And you just wanted to be that age. You wanted to be a counselor in training at the Babysitter's Club summer camp or whatever. Because that too... And I I remember thinking of Veda as old and mature. Mm -hmm. Seeing it as through the lens of being an adult is so different than watching it as a child. And I don't think I've really seen it since I was that age. I think the haunting thing about watching movies as an adult is like you have to consider both the text and the subtext and things that relate to you and don't relate to you. Whereas like when you're a kid, you're just like, this part relates to me. This is what the whole movie is about. This is like in my brain forever. And then when you get older, you're like, oh shit, like I got to process this on like seven different levels. (laughs) Yeah. It's really, really weird. I have two kids and it's really weird going back and watching and reading anything through the lens of reading it as a parent and filtering what's going to be appropriate that I think media for children now needs to have a, like a moral something that ties it all together, something that teaches a lesson. It's either absolute trash that just isn't trying to say anything or it's something that needs to teach. So Mm. therefore they don't have these sort of like open-ended E.B. White, like Charlotte was a good writer, these things, or her friend dies of bee stings and like maybe she grows a little and makes a new friend and that's life. Like this isn't how media now is created for children at all. Right. Because now it would be like she has a specific fear she needs to overcome Mm -hmm. to like go on some kind of hero's journey. And then if her friend dies, it's like we learn something from it. And then the conclusion, she would have to do something, I feel like, if it were made today. She would have to like uncover government malfeasance going all the way to (laughs) the mayor. She would have to be triumphant. And especially now, I think with everybody being so conscious of how little girls consume media, girls have to be triumphant. Right. Because that'll make up for the fact that the government wants them to die on either a fast or a slow death. So, hooray. Well, to that point, like, I think like the only I I loved the movie Young Adult, which I feel like is far superior to Juno. I loved that movie too. Yeah, it's really good. So I I think of Jason Reitman projects, Young Adult's my favorite. And I didn't realize why Mm -hmm. it is as similar to My Girl as any other movie because there's there's no vertical character development. It's about a person with questionable to bad morals who gets confronted with it sometimes. And it's a number of vignettes that happen. And that person never has significant growth where you could go like at the end, you're like, Oh, great. Like, good job. It is much closer to the reality of knowing anybody (laughs) Yes, than than anything else. (laughs) It's like a little bit of random growth. It's like, Oh, you have a new friend. You're like, Oh, you took your dog out to pee. You know, <laughs> well, she's also at the end of that movie. She's in a, at the end of my girl. She's in a dress, right? Mm. right? I don't know how we're supposed to take this. I don't know either. That change between 10, then 11, then 12, especially when yeah. puberty is involved and then maybe even to 13. 
I don't know whether or not Thomas J was going to die. This was going to be a formative summer. Unfortunately, it was profoundly formative on two levels. One, the whole one, two punch of finding, well, of your friend dying and then finding out that your crush is getting married, who was unattainable in the first place is a whole lot. I found like the one redemptive thing being a person now who hosts a movie podcast is that her new best friend's dad owns a movie theater. And I was like, that's great. That's fantastic. I hope. And in the seventies, you lucky duck. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. So she's 11 in 1971. So like, yeah, like 13 when the Godfather comes out and then it'll just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. She has a great era of, of movie watching in for her. 13 or 14 when Texas Chainsaw Massacre comes out. (laughs) do you think thomas J was aware that he had like a huge crush on her before they kissed or was it only after they kissed and his eyes got wide (laughs) that he suddenly realized that he had feelings for her i think it was when his eyes got wide because that's that's how they show you that your sims are in love so (laughs) oh got it I think that's a great question. Like maybe he knew it on paper, but it until it happened, yeah. he was like, oh shit, this is real. He knows this is his really cool friend who he goes on adventures with and like she's so pretty, maybe, and stuff like that. But like, cause then after that, he was like, Hey, so um if you don't marry Mr. Bixler, <laughs> just if that happens to not work out, you know. I suppose he she is his girl because he never had another girl. I think that's true. Yeah. Hmm. This movie's title refers to the dead kid. <laughs> yeah. In the character, which makes it even more grim. Like if you put that, if you let someone know going into it. Well, it's also him on the poster, right? It's the right. girl. That's you. It. It's Thomas J's girl. What if we got my girl three colon the revenge and Thomas J comes back? <laughs> you know. Does anyone see my girl too? I didn't. Nope. I certainly did. I saw every, my parents took me to see every single movie that came out in the theater for kids. I remember it not being good. Holy shit. That's awesome. It's got Devin Sawa, I think, right? Is that the boy? Had to be either him or Andrew Keegan. (laughs) That was it. Those were the only two people allowed. Yeah. Who now runs a cult? He runs a Coles. Have you been in that cult, Lindsay? In Los Angeles. Oh, Oh, I thought you said a Coles, like the store (laughs) with reasonably priced (laughs) items. I have a total side question because I'm I'm generally curious about like what people get recognized for. And I imagine um, Anna Klumsky, is that her name? Anna Klumsky, is that the last name? Yeah. I imagine she gets approached, obviously, about Veep a lot in this role. I read somewhere that you get approached by a lot of people who are still angry about your moves on gym in the office. Is that a real thing? It's not as much in, it's not as much in person. That is more online. It's on the internet. It's on the internet. Yeah. And actually what's weird is I don't think I'm kind of unassuming to begin with. And I think that like, I don't know, I don't think I carry myself like I'm somebody who you should notice on the street, but like I've noticed that I think that in the last two years, people consumed TV Mm. in like a really intense way Mm, because I lived in New York city for years and could basically go Mm. around and it was pretty inconsequential. And I now notice that when I am in Manhattan, uh, I I am receiving a different Mm. energy than I used to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think the office got binged. Yeah. Yeah. In person, people are only ever nice to me and I'm almost always with my kids. Do people recognize you from Julia? So no. However, I have noticed recently 
that I get a lot more attention from older people, mm. like double looks from older people. <laughs> 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 yeah. But I think that like Julia, I'm also like, so like, it's a thing. Like I got a whole rig, Period. Yeah. you know, <laughs> it doesn't really look like me. I got a whole rig. <laughs> I pretty much only ever get like asked for a selfie when I have like absolutely no makeup and like haven't showered in three days. <laughs> That's the only time. I don't know if you have that Sarah, but like, I feel like it's only, um, in those circumstances, but that's also because I've been on a lot of shows where like the look of the show was to be like, not. <laughs> so you're wearing, you're like going to the market chic and that's when you're like the classic. I, it's never when I look good. It's never when I look good. Hmm. It's very odd because I am most associated with something that happened 10 years ago. For me, it was 10 years ago and it was a really brief period of my life. And so, and it's just odd because I'm like a very different person than I was hmm. 10 years ago. So it's just strange. Anyway. I, I spent a lot of time wondering about what it would be like to be like a scream queen in a horror movie from like 1981. And what if you're like all grown up now and you're like a nice realtor in Connecticut and people are like, you're the one who got axed between the tits, you know? I think that's all like, I think that's like Barbara Crampton's story. And she just like still goes like, I think she's got like a day job and I think she still goes to like conventions on like weekends. I always feel like I have to apologize for looking old. Like I always feel like I have to be like, oh, it was 10 years ago. Like You look literally exactly the same. You look like the crypt keeper right now. I was going to say something about it, but I felt it would be rude. I mean, the fact that you're like sitting there in a coffin, honestly, that's contributing to it. Yeah. I always felt like the best thing I could be was like very mysterious and anonymous. Like, and there wasn't really social media in the way that there is now. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to be like hard to peg down. Hmm. And now I, I feel like I sort of like let go around the time I turned 30 and was just like, it doesn't like if your dreams haven't come true by the time you turn 30, you're like, well, <laughs> re, like if something happens now, it'll be like a story about someone's late success. And so I feel like, I sort of like let go in a way that allowed me to be significantly happier than when I constantly mm. felt like, I remember when I was getting married, I was like, I can't let anybody know I'm getting married or I can't, when I was pregnant, I was like, I could never tell anybody I'm having it. Like I wanted everything to be a secret and I always wanted to be mysterious so that at any moment, if something came up, I was just what mm. they were waiting for. And that was like the whole of my twenties in like a really sort of mind fucky way. And I almost feel like, yeah. I feel like that's resonant with many who are listening and who are alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm happy that I, you know, didn't attempt to publish any, any books during the, and she's only years, which is before you turn 30, where part of the gambit of publishing can be like, and she's only 24. And she wrote this yeah. novel on napkins in her dorm dining hall. Right. It's no longer like precocious success. Cause now I'm just cautious. Do you think like 28 to 32, like is like not precocious and not yet dead as far as you've internalized as the, as the window? Cause I need to push back against when you say that. Yeah. It depends on the industry. Like I think if you're writing like a big serious book, you can be precocious until you're 29. And then after that, <laughs> it's just like, meh, is it good or what? <laughs> Yeah, why'd they wait so long? I think I've gotten to two of the most interesting work I've done in like the last couple of years, like post kids, post like uh, buying a house I hate. You know, I guess now I'm just sort of in the like cruising part where anything is like a happy yeah. bonus. I feel I didn't start doing anything I loved till I was 35. Yeah. I did everything on 
impulse or autopilot or ill consideration until I was 30 and then became kind of aware of it and then took me five years to build any sort of apparatus to respond proactively. I was talking with somebody recently and we were talking about how like when we were in our 20s in LA and you there was kind of like that group of girls and we're all gunning for the same few jobs and you're always almost getting this and you're almost always getting that. But the amount of time I spent in my 20s just procrastinating working out. And that's all I did for like 10 years. I did no meaningful work. I could not tell you what I did. And then I somehow like at 29, just like got together with my friend from college and we just like got married and all of a sudden I like had a life. But all I did before that, I did no meaningful work. Not really, you know, it's no longer necessary. Like, I don't think the like obsessive working out that you have to be and like they can't tell people the things that they used to tell us mm-hmm. where like we would test for a pilot and we'd be at like the Americana at like 930 as like Bloomingdale's was about to close looking for a shirt that made us look sexier because we were, you know, like for the next day. Like that's not a thing anymore. That's fantastic. Because that always sounded uniquely terrifying. The one thing mm. coming back to my girl briefly that. One thing that I did appreciate in this viewing that I hadn't noticed as a kid because I wasn't paying attention to like broken uncles, though I had many, like many uncles that did like too much acid or like were in proximity to some sort of serial calamity or were like drug addicts or whatever. I loved the Richard Mauser character who is um, yes. Dan Aykroyd's brother. I love that. In the first scene or sec- two first two scenes, maybe that we get and we get no explanation. They just live in the, live and work in the house mm-hmm. together, maybe, or they work in the house together for sure. They share the mother who has dementia, I believe. We just saw Jurassic World Dominion, as I was talking about earlier, which is 87% exposition. Mm-hmm. Di- like the dialogue is 87% them just explaining to you what's happening. And this movie has a character it does not ever literally explain outside of his relationship with the characters in the movie, which is like so refreshing to watch. Yeah. Is he supposed to be hot? Uh, in his day. I don't, he's supposed to fuck. Right? Like I was trying to think like what the context was and I was like, is he supposed to be a stud or is he supposed to be, is it supposed to be like goofy that he's like this stud? I mean, I think a little goofy, but like you, I mean, he's like, Older in this. I love yeah. him. I mean, this guy had a great run. He was also in The Thing and Heaven's Gate. You know, like, it's so funny because this character presents so sweetly in a lot of ways. He's looking out for his brother. He has that really lovely scene on the swing with Veda where he's explaining to her that he thinks that the relationship is good because it's the first time he's his brother be funny um, since the, since his wife had died, since Veda's mom had died. They have that really sweet scene. And then we get the voiceover where it's like, He's been fucked up since being in Korea mm-hmm. and he has like a he has like a head plate and you're Steel like oh, plate. <laughs> right I'm like oh god I didn't I guess like you know a little bit of explanation was helpful cuz I didn't realize that that's what they were going for with this character he just seemed like you know a family member that maybe smokes a little pot behind the scenes but yeah I liked I liked that Every time there was a voiceover in this movie I'd be like oh I forgot they're doing voiceover and I would find <laughs> it so jarring <laughs> I was like, this is the most weirdly used voiceover. Yeah, there's no formula to That's it. That's true. <laughs> no, like it disappears for half the movie, then it comes back. And then like, you're like, I can't tell if it's pre-lapping the next scene. I've been watching Flatbush Misdemeanors. Have you seen the show? Which I 
adore i i watched i watched all the available episodes yesterday similarly they very occasionally use titles on the screen to offer some context there's no formula for it it's like you don't know whose voice it's in you don't know like is it like the filmmaker's voice is it the like character's voice it shows up maybe once every three episodes i really like the erratic nature of of uh narrative support if people want something to listen to because their entire system is scrambled from 36 hours of flight delays. Flatbush misdemeanors is a great way to spend six hours of your time. <laughs> Do you want to say anything more about your recent adventure, Alex? I guess the entire flight, the entire system's fucked. Like it's not just JetBlue, but JetBlue <laughs> really made me ask some deep questions this week. <laughs> <laughs> about the future of our nation. About the, it was just like being. In the, like front and center at the collapse while Roe v. Wade is being uh, repealed. I don't know how this book was really received when it came out, but I remember reading like Fareed Zachariah's America as a Second World Nation. I think that's what it was ultimately called. And I was like, I wonder what that's going to be like. And this week I was like, yeah, okay, I feel it. Yeah. Just like systems collapse on every level. Well, right. It's just that we had a lot of things, a lot of doohickeys that were being held together by gum. And like all the gum is sort of like losing its stickiness at or like more to the point, the gum is being faced with like greater push and a greater force than gum can really handle. The idea was like, it's fine if this is gum that we fix this with, as long as nothing big happens and like, whoops, something big happened. Right. We were living on real like borrowed prosperity and time for about 40 years yeah. and at some point. And then I, we were saying this in the park. I forget what parking lot we were in. Sarah and I spent a lot of time in parking lots this past week. But the um, we did because all the good restaurants are in parking lots. Not all of them, but a lot of them. But it really feels like it was like from like right after the Second World War, that like initial 40 years was like, all right, this is great. It's always going to be exactly like this specifically for moneyed white people. And then crashed in the 80s. But they were like, let's pretend like that didn't happen. Let's build everything on credit and that'll be sustainable. And then it was 40 years of that. And then that collapsed. And now just like nothing works. It's been a really interesting thing to watch while everyone else is like, yeah, we know nothing works. We've been on the receiving end of that this whole time. Sorry that you're just now realizing it. And we're like, my airplanes. <laughs> But my girl is about 1972 or one, one of when those. things were great. When things were incredible. <laughs> right as things were getting real good. Right, exactly. <laughs> right as the lie was real fresh. <laughs> <laughs> it's the freshest moment of the lie. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, I wonder if the reason that, like, all of the media for children now, like it kind of needs to be sort of like a morality tale and it needs to be wholesome and it needs to be a lesson because the world is so terrible that I could not possibly show my five-year-old, my girl, the world is bad enough. And I want to keep him from knowing how awful it is for as long as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. That was the thing of like the pandemic, even with kids was just like trying to keep them from noticing, you know, like trying to keep them from noticing how, weird everything was. And I had a three-year-old when it started and he turned three right as COVID started. And I remember thinking like, I felt like I was constantly gaslighting him. Like, I'd be like, you're having a birthday party. You're not, you were never having a birthday party. Like, I, I meant the birthday party was just like us on Zoom with our grandparents. And like, yeah. and I feel like I was doing that all yeah. the time for like two years. And so I guess there is like that element of 
like what we make now for families and children, like needing to be a lot more Mm. escapist than it was in like the eighties and nineties when we could kind of see the terror that other people's faced. And that was sort of entertainment because things were just really easy. Yeah. And escapist and also moral. Yeah. Like you can show your child, my girl in, in about five years and be like, look, you could have handled it. Like when we gaslit you when you were three, or we could have handled it like Dan Aykroyd, which one do you want? Hey, dads used to be like this. (laughs) Some, some still very much are. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say, I I know a couple. Did this make you, I don't know. I don't want to dig too much into your personal life life, but did this make you grateful for, um, whatever, whatever fatherhood looks like in your household now? Oh yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that like my dad who probably will listen to this because my parents are massive Sarah fans. Oh, that's so nice. I had cool parents. I was not cool and they were not cool in the context of where we lived. Um, so I don't, I don't think I necessarily appreciated it, but they were like young and fun. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had really traditional gender roles in our family. I had a dad who who went to work and I had a mom who stayed home and took care of the house. But I had like a dad who was emotional and emotionally available. And I think that I can't imagine a scenario. You know, I think my husband, whose father passed a couple of years ago, he had a very sort of traditional 1970s gruff daddy who was soft and hard and all of those things. And he is very much not that. And I think that most of the dads that I come in contact with now are not that either. I don't think men get away with that anymore. Well, I think the men that we socialize with don't. Right. There's, there's a lot of them out there that are getting away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. I don't know about the rest of the country, but I'm in Tennessee. I see these dads around sometimes. (laughs) Same with men, but yeah, I think like general, there is like a pocket of like that's not going to fly, and it's a, and it's a growing pocket, hopefully, and it's a really important pocket. Yeah, I'm really invested in that pocket, especially in the face of now, yeah. where we have to rely on the social fabric keeping people honest rather than the the institutional fabric. Mm. Well, there's just so much pressure on the kids that are getting raised now. There's so much pressure on raising them correctly. The, the trauma of fucking up your kids and understanding now what is at stake if we fuck up our kids is so extreme. Mm -hmm. I say, and to tie it back to my girl, that was like the thing when that movie ended, I turned to my husband and I was like, Oh, she's fucked up for life. Like, This is like not going to be a well adult. This is going to be like a person with like a lot of problems because that's it, right? Like we're just constantly afraid of fucking up our kids. Mm -hmm. And this is a kid who is just now going to be fucked up because she certainly, I mean, I guess Shelly will try. But Shelly's not going to be able to be her therapist. I don't know. I pretty much, I didn't, I don't really on the like dead mom level, but as a person who was tasked with taking care of their dying father at 12. And then it took like a following 14 years for that to actually happen. Uh, yeah, she will be fucked yeah. up, but she might have a podcast at 35 and she'll be great for that. <laughs> well, that's what we hope for, for people. Yeah. I mean, I do think the pressure to like not fuck up your children. It's like, I don't know that it's like, yes, don't do that, please. But also like, maybe that's the wrong goal because it's like life is going to happen And, like, to a significant extent, life 
creates trauma. That's like one of the ingredients. I think that's one of the areas where we went really wrong was being like trauma. What's that? It's a very rare thing that happens very occasionally to some soldiers who get like their arms blown off, but only both <laughs> arms. And only if Jerry gets his, your best friend as well. Yeah. And now I feel like we're finally at a point in a mainstream cultural way of accepting, like everybody gets some kind of a serving of trauma from life or God or whatever you want to say. And it's just like part of your plate and societies have to be set up in a way that acknowledges and puts a lot of energy into taking care of that in one way or another. Yeah. The, a good deal of people when I posted, I, I was reposting your story, Lindsay, on Instagram and people were like, oh, like, I've been wondering, like, when is going to be an appropriate time to like share this with my child? Like many, many people said that. I don't know. Like, I do feel like I, you know, not too young and I don't know what not too young means. And that's so conditional. But I do feel like more kids had ambiguous growth bad shit happens sometimes life is existentially strange media to deal with than they do. I feel like spot, you know, like, you know, it's a good bridge between th this era that we're watching now and the era that exists at present is spy kids. <laughs> would not have guessed that that was going to come up. Really? I've never seen it. It's like, it's, I mean, Robert Rodriguez made it. So it's like a Robert Rodriguez series of movies for children. So there you go. It's like feral kids in one way or another, but with some structure, they deal with all sorts of weird shenanigans that happen. Bad things happen, but they also like triumph in the face of it. It's not overtly moral. I'd be interested in hearing from mm. folks who grew up in the Spy Kids era, because I know that like some of our audience was of the Spy Kids ilk. I also think you guys will perhaps agree with me that it seems telling that this wave of like life is random. Sometimes your best friend dies for some reason. What are you to do about it? Well, anyway, ride your bike away to a cool song movies. They were like kind I think their heyday was like the 80s, late 80s and early 90s. And I think we know why that was a time of relative calm and prosperity in the United States. And now it's like, yeah, we don't need to tell kids that sometimes your best friend randomly is murdered by bees. They know that that's happened to them recently. Totally. For sure. So many of the movies we've covered that came out at this time were relitigating our ideas about Vietnam. Yeah. It was in the face of relative calm, but it was also people trying to like filmmakers trying to understand their, ch their childhoods in the 70s. Yeah. I also want, wonder to what degree Childhood is just really hard any way you slice it, no matter what your childhood is, no matter how happy it is. Everybody has feelings of anxiety. Everybody has fears mm -hmm. of death from an early age. And to see that it is a possibility that your friend could get stung by bees and die and that your fears and your terror all the time, even though your life is technically good, is justified, yes. is like sort of satisfying. And that's why we read books about teens with terminal illnesses finding love in hospice. <laughs> exactly. Okay. We know that Dan Aykroyd is the father in this movie, who, in your view, Sarah Marshall, mm. is the daddy. I think the daddy is Shelley because... She like confidently walks into this complicated family dynamic and is like, yes, I'm ready. I want this. And I really do believe that from her character. And she has a Biction camper and cool outfits and she looks hot and she's like, I know what I want. And I want this, this Dan Aykroyd person. 
Let's go to the carnival. She pays for the writing class. Yeah, accidentally, but still. Uh, yes. Oh, as yeah, as Sarah, you said that you're the moral of this movie to you, or like the message of this movie to you was what based on sh- on on what happens. Is if you steal something from an adult, or if you do something they're going to be mad about, tell them right after some kind of tragedy <laughs> hits your life because then they won't be able to punish you. Yes, I learned that happened a lot on like Full House in one way or another and I certainly learned about timing uh, bad bad news. <laughs> this movie really, I was thinking about Full House and I meant to bring this up earlier, this movie was truly in the era of cool teenage, cool tween girls with dead moms yes. because I think that Stephanie Tanner, no one was cooler than Stephanie Tanner. She was cooler than yeah. both of her sisters. She was good at dancing. She wore the best outfits. She was about the same age as this girl. So it's Stephanie, Veda, and Belle. <laughs> Stephanie Tanner played by Jody Sweeten, who Jody Sweeten yesterday at a at a pro-choice protest got almost knocked the fuck out by the LAPD. Really? That's how cool Stephanie Tanner still is. Is she's She was on the right side of things. Yeah, she was on the pro she was on she wasn't on DJ's side. That's good. For some reason in my head that she was automatically not going to be on the right well, side. Well, of no, things. like DJ is on the wrong side. A family divided. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if they they probably don't talk about that on set. My take of who the daddy is is the entire writing class. No. I love the writing class so much. I love how kind of cool they are with this like this young girl that comes in and they try to be as supportive and sort of tender as possible in the face of everything that's going on i also like that she just like drops in because she's dealing with a whole bunch of stuff just to read her poem and then leaves the class which i really like but that's what everyone secretly wants from a writing workshop they want to be like okay here's my thing okay thank you goodbye i have no time for anyone else (laughs) uh, i love the hippies and like what they're trying to pull off like i love that entire class class and the vibe of that class is supportive and welcoming in a way that no writing class I ever participated in was so I I think I have like a little envy as well you know what it is supportive like Alex the newsies fandom on fanfiction.net in 2003 where I learned how to write yes that's beautiful Lindsay Who's the daddy? I'm in agreement that Shelly is the daddy hmm. I think the fact that she tells Vita she doesn't have to pay the money back as long as she donate as long as she dedicates her first book to her is so empowering yeah and validating that I don't think it's fair and she handles everything yeah yeah she just handles 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 and she's t- she's also being Harry's daddy too yeah when Alex and I were watching this I was like she's going to have to do a lot of work to get anything started you know <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I'm in total agreement. I think it is empowering, but also like if Veda is anything like me, she's going to carry around knowing she has to de- dedicate this book to someone like the <laughs> heaviest weight in the world until it's finally done. And maybe that's what she needs. That's great. But- maybe that'll motivate her and it'll be like Werner Herzog eats his shoe. Yes, it will be. It will be. Absolutely. <laughs> Anywho, Lindsay, thanks so much for uh, for doing this. How can people find you uh if you want them to at all what do you want people to know about you uh what's the best i am listen you can find some of my most recent work i was on american crime story impeachment this past season Hell which yeah. you can find on hulu 
I am currently on Julia on HBO Max, and you can find me. I'm lightly on Twitter, and I'm on Instagram, and it's mostly pictures of my kids. It's the wise way to be. If you put your name into a thesaurus, does it put out that you're Lindsay Dame? I wish. I hated my last name until I was about 26, and I would always whisper it when people would ask me. And then one day, a friend of mine was just like, you ever think I just have a great last name? And I was like, no, I've literally never thought that. (laughs) But now you know. Weeping willow with your tears running down, why do you always weep and frown? Is it because he left you one day? Is it because he could not stay? Weeping willow, stop your tears. There is something to calm your fears. You think death has ripped you forever apart, and I know he'll always be in your heart. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. We appreciate you. We appreciate Lindsay Broad. We appreciate my girl. Thank you, Carolyn Kendrick, for producing and editing this episode old school. We're soup to nuts. Carolyn did the whole thing. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate you. Thank you to Fresh Lush for providing the beats. Thank you for listening, my friends. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You are good pod. You can find us on Patreon at you are good. Again, bonus episodes. Got some good ones coming out. You can check out the live stream. You can check out future live streams live if you're not already a patron or haven't done that yet. And next week, Ratatouille with Ruby Tando. So excited to share that with you. Thanks, everybody. We're very lucky. And we're lucky because you help make this possible and you listen and you share it with other people. And I'm sure you uh, uh, leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. (laughs) And if you don't, it's a pretty cool thing to do. All right. Thanks, everybody.